Where, where's my squishy doctor, you know? <laughs> Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Jesse Chartier. Jesse, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Jesse, who are you? Ooh, who am I? That's a great question. Um, right now, because we all have different chapters in our lives, I am director of education at a company called Mobile Makers Academy, where we uh, are in charge and honored to be in charge of helping adults learn iOS development. Um, they're usually career changers, uh, but we do it in eight weeks. So we are at the cutting edge of the education field where we are offering some of those just-in-time trainings and converting and making uh, people become better in their field in short amounts of time. So my background is in education. I've dabbled in technology. And of course, now I'm much more, I'm hip deep in it now with this position. And uh, yeah, kind of changing the world one student at a time. Eight weeks. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, isn't it? That's just mind boggling. (laughs) Just absolutely. So, um, I work with App Camp for Girls. People who listen to this podcast um, hear me talk about it a lot. So We love App Camp for Girls. So yeah. huzzah. <laughs> yeah. So I was actually, as we record this, um, we're recording it about 10 days before it's going to go up. So just for people listening. Um, so last week I was in Portland um, helping to volunteer at a camp. And that was five days. Um and it was pretty intense, you know. <laughs> so. It is. It is. Well, and they're doing amazing work and and really being able to reach young girls, you know, mm. especially during that time. I mean, if you, as you can probably speak to it more than I can, there's that that very, very precious time in young girls' lives, young women's lives, where they're transitioning to adolescence and something happens. You know, it's right in that sixth to uh, eighth grade period where before that, the footing is equal Uh, boys and girls are both doing really well in math and science or equally well, I should say. And then something happens between sixth grade and and eighth grade where uh, girls start to slip. Mm -hmm. And so it's critical to have programs like app camp for girls out there to be able to provide a safe space for those, those young entrepreneurial women who are interested in moving into the sciences and the computer sciences to be able to express themselves and be able to use the tools. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you're involved because that's a great organization to be attached to. Yeah. And it's just, um, you know, I stayed with Jean McDonald, who's the founder mm-hmm. of AppCamp for a week and I still like her at the end of it. So, you know, the, <laughs> it says something as to how wonderful she is and how great all of the people, you know, especially, you know, Portland, where mm-hmm. all of the founding members are. Um, it was just it was phenomenal. But um, so I'm thinking about what we did in five days with these girls. What does it look like for an eight week course? I mean, that's that's really intense for app camp. We work a lot with, you know, code snippets and that kind of thing. So they're not Mm -hmm. inventing the wheel, but you're teaching them to go from like little knowledge to full on mobile dev, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, we really see coding as um, an opportunity. It's a gateway. Uh, It's also a trade and a craft. 
So it's one of the few areas left, at least this is my personal opinion, this is not Mobile Maker's opinion, but it's one of the few areas that I see uh, the ability as an educator to really be able to provide, provide an opportunity to anybody, to any person out there who has an aptitude for being able to program to get into a field that can help them find that lifestyle, that salary range to be able to um, pay the bills and get the house and provide for their families. You know, and there are few and far between trades that are like that anymore, and especially ones that have um, kind of the trajectory that development does. You know, and so one of the great things about our eight week program is that you don't have to go to a four year degree or even a two year degree two-year degree to get into the field, you can do this eight-week program and uh, get in right away at ground level. And because of that, we have seen great success with a variety of students. You know, it's not just the affluent communities of white suburban America that are becoming successful in these programs. You know, it's really based on an aptitude for problem solving and puzzles. If you like puzzles, you know, that's pretty much what programming is, is just right. identifying the issues. So in the eight weeks, we really, we, it's immersive, you know, it is baptism by fire because we don't want to linger. One of our um, goals is to get you into the field as quickly as possible, you know, and right now that only takes us eight weeks as the field develops that may expand or it may contract, but we always look at what is the, the quickest way to get people into the field who have the skills so they can get on with their lives so they can get in and actually work in the field and learn in the field and continue and continue to grow. So that's really the eight weeks is pretty intense. As you talked about, you do five days, you know, our students are working at least 60 hours a week when they're here for the eight weeks um, they're working weekends, they're working late into the night. You know, we always tell our students before they come in, you know, kiss your loved ones and tell them you'll see them in eight weeks. It really is called a boot camp for a reason. And most of our students take that very seriously. Our instructional staff takes it very seriously. We recognize that people are leaving behind a livelihood for eight weeks to come in and learn this. And so because of that, it's very intense, but we do, we have to take them, you know, unlike app camp for girls, uh, at that's supposed, you know, an app camp for girls is trying to get them interested exactly. in computer science. We're trying to help them create livelihoods based on this. So it is really, it's very intense. There's a lot of support systems that we have to provide for. Um, and there's just a lot of uh, educational philosophy behind it and structure in order to make sure that we're not just throwing stuff at them, that we're doing it with purpose and then we're doing it thoughtfully so that they can make the most out of the eight weeks that they're here. But yeah, it's, it's tough. It's why we have multiple instructors for every cohort so that we don't burn anybody out. <laughs> yeah. So is, are there criteria for people who want to, to go through the course? You know, the, the criteria that we have is pretty uh, accessible, I should say. It's not something that you have to have so many years of work experience. You don't even have to have programming experience. Um, but what we do do is we provide pre-coursework material for students to really kind of help them bone up on some of those skills. The the main um, criteria that we have seen successful students come through is an, it goes back to that aptitude for programming. And what does that look like? Because that's really amorphous. The, the aptitude really is about how much grit do you have? Do you have grit and perseverance? You know, so if something's not working, what do you do? And if it's not working perpetually, how do you react? If you're the type of person that gives up and walks away, programming is not for you. It doesn't matter how much you know about computer science. If, that's, if you don't have that, 
grit and perseverance programming is just not for you. And that's okay, you know, to own that. It's okay to own that. Um, So those are two characteristics that we've seen. Resourcefulness and curiosity, you know, seeing the world as a place to explore rather than a place to conquer or to solve usually also is a key indicator that you'll be good at computer programming because it's, again, about diving in and solving puzzles and solving problems and seeing those as opportunities to explore rather than as defeats. So it's really dependent upon the persona of the person coming in. But in regards to actual skill sets, it helps to have a mastery of basic computer skills, like knowing how to work a computer and how to work um, specifically a Mac. But, you know, as long as you come in with the skills of perseverance and you have that, that basic computer skill that you can easily pick up at even a, a local library, it's definitely something that is possible. Wow. Yeah. Um, and is there a cost to enrolling in the program? There is. Uh, it depends. Uh, we have two uh, campuses. So there's one in Chicago and then there's one in San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco is a little bit more expensive just because of location. So San Francisco is $11,000 and Chicago is nine. So depending on where you want to go and what you want to do after the cohort, um, Chicago is really well known for um, its, as San Francisco is, for its startup scene, but also it's really well known for its access to larger companies that are looking to grow in-house development teams. So things like Walgreens, um, a lot of other shops that are in the Chicagoland area are looking to build that team in-house. If you're looking for more of the entrepreneurial side of things um, and the, the quick, fast-pacedness, that's usually where San Francisco comes in. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So. How many, how many cohorts have you had? You know, we started in 2012 was our first cohort and we do five or six cohorts a year. So we've graduated over 300 students at this point. Um, we also recently started a high school program that I can talk about in, in a minute here. Um, but we've been running and operating since 2012 and we came up from a need in the Chicagoland market area where there were some development shops in Chicago that really were struggling to find iOS developers. You know, the iPhone was less than four years old in 2012. And so they were trying to move into that market and having a hard time training people. And so mobile makers grew out of a need for from local dev shops to, to fill that need. And um, as you can probably see in all the, the news that... Uh, not only has uh, coding kind of picked up its place and forefront of the public eye, but you know, I development and specifically for mobile is something that is huge and, and picking up steam mainly because that's the direction of a lot of different areas of commerce is moving to mobile. So tell me about the high school program. Yeah, the high school program is, is, uh, Ooh, it's a hoot. There's a <laughs> lot that goes on in the high school program. I'm so, sure. Um, I'm a former high school English teacher myself. So I have, I'm a rare bird in that I can speak both to uh, high school level type of education, but I've also helped colleges and local universities. And of course, here at Mobile Makers, we teach adults. So I'm able to speak to both types of teaching philosophy and teaching methodology. So pedagogy and andragogy. So the high school program kind of came out as a really cool uh, endeavor. We had a district, a school district in the Chicagoland area that came to us and said, you know, hey, we really want to offer an iOS development class. So we're going to put one of our teachers through your cohort so that he can learn how to develop and then build a curriculum around that. 
And we had educational experts on staff and we said, you know what, why don't we do one better? Why don't you come through the cohort, but we'll help build curriculum. We'll build the curriculum for you and we'll teach your teachers on how to teach computer science. And um, that ended up, it started out as simple, something as simple as helping one teacher. And as it happens in the school districts at um, that kind of level, the neighboring district caught wind that they were doing this and jumped on board. So our beta test had seven, I think it was seven schools and nine teachers that we were running through. And so it was like 250 high school students was in, were in our beta test. Um, and so what we did is we have built out a high school program that we don't teach the high school students directly. Instead, what we do is we teach teachers how to teach um, iOS development in their classes. And there is a, a, the program consists of like three things. It's teacher training, which I'll talk about in a second here, and then curriculum and then uh, teacher support. And those three things are really unique to our program because being a former high school teacher myself, and I have a former high school teacher on staff with me here too, is, you know, we recognize two things. You can't just kick curriculum over the fence and hope it works. You really have to put um, energy and effort and time in with the professionals of the field who are the teachers. So we really take to heart and take a, a clear responsibility in being able to help those teachers teach. And that's really where a lot of the focus of our program is. Um, and that's pretty unique in the field. Most oftentimes people will have curriculum and the training is just an orientation to the curriculum. But we focus on curriculum, we focus on pedagogy, we focus on classroom management, we focus on how you can implement it based on schedules and bell schedules and needs of students and a lot of different things. And so we really kind of provide like a 360 support mechanism around the teachers. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them being that the high schools are struggling to find computer science teachers. There's all this money and all this push in our country for uh, coding in schools, you know, programming in schools, everybody's got a program in school. Well, according to the regulators, the only way you can teach computer science in a classroom and something that's that is a computer science class is if you have a degree in computer science. And if I have a degree in computer science and can program I'm not teach, I, yeah, why wouldn't I take the hundred and twenty five thousand dollar job and make that instead of starting as a teacher at like forty five or fifty five thousand a year? So it's really hard to find the teachers. So we've what we have done is we have been able to not only teach the computer science teachers that are out there. But there are a lot of schools that are offering career tech, like they're offering uh, technical classes as business classes and as career tech because it fits in their entrepreneurial um, kind of trajectory. It's not really computer science, but it is computer science. It's not designed to make people um, computer software engineers. It's just designed to help people execute computer programs and be able to build them. And so what we've been doing is training not only computer science teachers, but also business teachers who want to teach this class in their business curriculum. So we're able to help solve a gap problem for these schools that want to include programming, but don't have a computer science teacher on staff. It's like the first step for them to be able to move into that realm. And that, that really warms my heart because that means now that the opportunity for these students to be able to learn this content is incredibly increased. And the best part about it, Aileen, the best part about it is that we are teaching students, high school students, 
the tools that are necessary in order to create solutions to problems that we didn't even know they had. So one great example of that is a student at one of the high schools was frustrated with the theater department's um, audition cycle and process because it was all analog. And so he's like, one of his um, discussions was about how heartbreaking it is to look at a cast list and not see your name. And you're surrounded by people who have gotten it or haven't gotten it. And it's really kind of a a tumultuous event. Mm -hmm. And so using the skills that he learned in the class, he built his theater department, an app that allowed students to log in and choose audition times. It allowed the um, teachers to log in through a totally separate uh, it's called a login avenue, but it's a totally different login to access um, their schedules, to take notes, to rate students, to have do callbacks. I mean, everything went digital. And he was able to solve that problem with just the tools that we gave him. So that that's really exciting to me because we're going to see problems being solved that we didn't even know were issues in the past. Isn't it amazing how that happens? It is amazing. Have you guys found similar things in in the app camp for girls? You know, since it's so compressed and such a limited scope, I mean, I'm sure it has. And we have had um, we have had girls to go go on and like write their own apps and delve more into things um, in Portland, especially since that's all three years of app camp. They've all happened in Portland and then, you know, have since expanded to other cities Mm -hmm, as well. mm -hmm. But like. This year, um, what we do is you go through the program once and then next year you have the opportunity to come back as an intern if you want to. Mm. And so this year we had interns um, for each of the teams. And so the um, the person interning with um, my team, which was the Regal Ocean Sloths, and I just love the name they chose for themselves. <laughs> but she was so excited because last year everything was Objective C. And this year we made the switch over to Swift and, you know, she was, she was like comparing and contrasting the objective C to the Swift and really excited about getting in there and like creating her own app with, with the, um, the source code we provided. And, um, you know, we talked about WWDC and the scholarship program. Um, and she's like really stoked to do that. Um, but on the first day of, of the camp, the first thing we do is we're like, okay, what are you interested in? And they kind of pick a couple of things that, that they're really passionate about. And so um, we had one, one student who was like, I'm a feminist and, you know, that's really cool. And another one was like, well, I'm, I'm really into theater. Um, we had another who was... Um, really into role-playing, um, tabletop role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons. And so then we go, okay, well, what's a problem you have? What, what's, what's something that you hit a pain point with? And we kind of teach them how to brainstorm apps, um, you know, and so we had, oh, well, I think that um, I could create an app to teach people about feminism and maybe it could have some message boards where um, people could ask questions and and have conversations and um, share new ideas. And, oh, well, I think my app could be a Dungeons and Dragons, you know, a character sheet so that, you know, I can really spend a lot of time building out my character and then I don't lose the sheet of paper that I've done all this work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, I'm into musical theater and we really need help building sets. And so I could create an app where you can it would help you build your sets and um 
and I don't know if they'll go on to do that, but just the fact that they they so readily could identify problems and come up with solutions in a relatively short period of time leaves me pretty optimistic about it. Yeah, and we've seen we've seen exactly that too. And in fact, what's interesting is that we've seen that at the adult level too. You know, when we have adults that come in through the program, you know, initially they come in because they either have a really great app idea or they really like to problem solve, but they don't quite know how to turn that into an app, right? Mm-hmm. They they see a world problem and don't know quite how to find a solution for it. And by the end, they they joke. They say, "Well, everything is an app now." Like they look at the world and can see all the problems and be like, how can I solve this? It's, it becomes much more of a, how do I solve this rather than, oh, I wish it was fixed or I wish it wasn't what it wasn't that way. It gives them the, the tools and the confidence to be able to, to look at the world around them and be able to say, okay, I can take ownership of this problem and find a solution for it. And that I feel is really powerful. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I, I really like the way that um, the programming mind and that computer engineering mind really kind of looks at the world and says, how can I solve the problem? Not just pointing out the problems, but there's always the how, 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 how can we solve it? And that's really exciting that, it, that there are opportunities out there to learn those skill sets, especially at such a young age from, for app camp. And then also through adolescence with our program, and then even in adulthood, you know, cause I am, my background is not programming. I'm a, I'm an education background from the, you know, to my bones and uh, coming in and, and having to hear strange Greek terminology variables and table views and delegates and oh, my brain spins. Right. But um, knowing that those are the tools that it's much less Greek for me, to me now that I've been here for over a year. But it's uh, it's definitely very interesting to watch how people evolve in over the course of an eight week or even like the week that you're talking about mm-hmm. into better problem solvers for that. It's very empowering. It's very empowering. And I think the veil kind of gets lifted. I think, you know, people think of development in general as some kind of uh, weird magic, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I've experienced this where I've shown, you know, people who are not like computer nerds, like I am, like an app that I've written and they're like, oh my gosh, I I could... I could never do that. And it's like, actually, you probably could like, and I think that once, once you kind of get into it and you see everything that's possible, Mm -hmm. like really there are very few limits on what you can do. And, um, and I think that it, it just kind of shifts your paradigm enough that you can look around and see all of these opportunities. Whereas before it's just like, oh, well, I mean, maybe there's a solution for this, but it would be really hard. And I, I don't know how to approach it. And um, it's empowering, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, lifting the veil is probably the first thing that we have to do. So our eight-week program, we spend the first good chunk of it, including in the pre-course work. We, we spend a good time, amount of time talking about how to unlearn what you know about learning. Because it's this is not... The, the a way you approach things is twofold. You know, this is really one of those fields where you just have to get in and just get dirty with the code. And I think that you, you could probably talk a little bit about how you guys do that with app camp. Like you give them code snippets so they can go in and play with it. You got to give them something to play with right away. And that is just so, it's so eye opening to them because the moment they get an app to work, you could see them open their eyes and have this moment of, 
I thought it was going to be much harder than that. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that this was going to be much more complicated than that. And then they learned that the complicated aspects of it are not where they expected. They're in different locations. I mean, programming is hard. Let's face it. It's not an easy field by any means. But at the same time, it's incredibly rewarding because you get that instant gratification of being able to hit the simulator and run it and be able to see the app work right there and then. Yeah. And the cool thing about AppCamp is, you know, again, compressed period of time. But at the end of the first day, they walk away with their own iPod Touch for the week. And each 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 of them had a little Hello World app, which in Swift is extremely simple to write, mm-hmm. and a little calculator app that they that they program pretty much all by themselves. And that was that was super neat to, you know, they were like, oh, like I made this and I get to take this home and I get to show like everybody in my family. Yep. And um and seeing that realization. Um, and I'm sure even on the adult level, <laughs> where mm-hmm. they're, they're like, oh, wait, this is actually something I can do. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And it's, we talk a lot about, I mean, so right now, today, as we're recording, we have our students going through the last three weeks. So they're in their last week and a half here of their cohort, which means they are in teams building out apps that they pitched and decided they wanted to build on their own. So it is heads down, grinding against the grindstone. And then every once in a while, there'll be an eruption of cheering because they fixed a bug or they got something to work or um, they got over a barrier that they never thought they could get over or, or what have you. But there's that sense of ownership. And then they're running around with the app on their phone, handing it off, being like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Jesse, you got to come see this. Look at what we were able to do. And it's just absolutely exhilarating because there's so much pride in it. And there's um, such a sense of fulfillment that is just absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And they're able to tweak things better than we ever would expect. You know, one of the things that we we train our instructors on too, both instructors for our adults and the high school teachers, is that at a certain point, you will be surprised what students can do. You just have to, like, there's this perfect moment of letting go, of just being like, just show me what you can do and trust that the students will, will rise to the occasion. And they almost always exceed our expectations, almost always exceed the expectations. And it's because there's that sense of ownership. There's that sense of, um, oh yeah, I could totally do this. Like I can do this. I can do this. So let's switch tacks just a tiny bit. How did you get involved with mobile makers? So my trajectory has been a very interesting one. Uh, I got involved, long story short, because I know a developer who knew um, the co-founder of the company. So my background is in education, as I said. So I started as a high school teacher, and then I started to uh, move up a little bit and was helping to, or expanding, not move up, but I expanded out and started working with other teachers and developing curriculum, common course curriculum. And then I discovered that I really enjoyed helping teachers teach and uh, building out curriculum. And so I moved into college development, college curriculum development and instructional design, where I got to help professors teach and build curriculum and kind of worked with them. And that evolved into me always, and I've always wanted to push the envelope when it comes to the education field, because I feel like it's just been stagnant for so long. Mm-hmm. And so that pushed me a little bit more in the direction of competency-based programs. And so I started helping build out some competency-based programs and online programs, getting um, universities and colleges up and running in their online space. 
And that's where I was living at the time. And a friend of mine, who was a, also a friend of the family's, kind of contacted me and said, hey, I'm making a warm connection between you and a colleague of mine who owns this company called Mobile Makers. And um, he's looking to bounce some ideas off of someone who's in education and knows the education space. Would you mind just chatting with them? And that was, um, they brought me together with um, the, the co-founder at that point. And they were interested in chatting with me for their high school program. That's when the high school program was starting to take off and they needed to talk to somebody um, who knew the high school world. Um, and so I came in and just listened to a few of their ideas and kind of gave them some direction on that. And they loved it. And so I fell in love with the company the moment I stepped in the door because it was cutting edge. I mean, we are at the bleeding edge of what higher education and, and vocational training is all about. They are, we're, we're causing a ruckus in all the right ways. You know, we're, we're trying to provide an opportunity to um, people that may not have an opportunity or want a career change and don't want to have to go back and go back to school for four years and all these other things. So I fell in love with the company right away. And it just seems like a natural fit because of all of the things that it included. It was technology focused. It was um, focused on the right things, opportunities for students, student progress, uh, student support, teacher support, teacher instruction. So um, they made me an offer and I took it. So here I am. That's really exciting. It is. This was, this was one of those positions where when I walked in and I'm like, all right, where are the bodies hid? Like right. there, there's no way this can be this good. And it has been, it's been absolutely amazing because it's the perfect um, amalgamation of everything that I'm passionate about. You know, it's education, it's tech, it's tech, it's accessibility, it's opportunity, and it's direct to marketplace. So it's the perfect combination of everything I looked for. And I love it. Couldn't ask for anything better. So you've got the high school program and mm -hmm. you've got um, your established adult program in San Francisco and Chicago. Can you talk about any future plans that might be brewing? You know, we're always looking to improve what we currently have. So, and then of course, to find where the opportunities naturally reside, we were born out of the market. And so we want to make sure that we stay on top of the market. So wherever the market tells us that we need to go, we'll go. Um, you know, there's some future plans to continue to expand our offerings, meaning like, what are we going to do with alumni relations? Because our alumni pool is getting really big. Um, their Apple is coming out with new stuff all the time. So we've started up with new meetups to allow for kind of injection classes and short classes like that for alumni who want to come back and learn things. So like watch kit, like doing an evening workshop on watch kit or doing a hackathon, um, which we've done in the past for a specific need in an area. So we're constantly growing. It's not just our a one pony show, but we are, we're growing in a way that is demanded by the market. So as the market grows, you'll see us grow along right with it. That alumni support component is really cool. Mm -hmm. And do you help with like job placement? Do you have existing relationships or, um, a job fair? Or yeah, a lot of our, so we do not, well, what we do is we have what is known as meet the makers event. So at the end of every cohort, we have um, a tech showcase where the students are gathered around. It's just a typical tech showcase. So, so they have a table, they've got um, their team, they've got demos, they've got everything set up to demonstrate the app that they built in the last three weeks. And we we pack the place with recruiters. So it is not uncommon for the recruiters to come around and already start setting up interviews with some of our candidates before they even leave. 
Um, we do have good relationships with develop, uh, development shops in the local areas. So anytime we do, we often have those shops reach out to us saying, all right, who should I look at from this cohort? Or can I come over and meet the students? Or um, how can I get in? And that's usually where a lot of our mentors come into place. Um, a lot of the shops around the areas, both in San Francisco and in Chicago, um, will mentor with us so that they can have direct access to the students. Um, so the, we, although we don't have someone dedicated to helping provide career support, there is lots of opportunity for careers to be found because it just naturally is baked into our process. And our going back to what you were talking about with our alumni relations, our alumni are incredibly active and they are, I will say, hands down the best alumni in the world. They're great. They are incredibly active. They are incredibly um, familial. So it's all about helping each other. They stay in touch. They come back. They do favors for us. Something as simple as, hey, I have extra donuts in the space. Someone please come over and eat them. You know, they're all <laughs> over that. Um, so they, but they're, they're really, really a tight knit group. And I think that speaks to the quality of our community that we've built up here at the school. You know, this is a, a unique and precious experience to be able to go from ground zero uh, to developer in eight weeks. And it's a life-changing, life-altering event. And ties that are built during this time are really tight. And so we we are thrilled to be a part of that tightness and that milestone and that transition in someone's life. So we take the alumni relations very seriously. So there is always opportunity for continual job placement. We, we do share job openings that we um, find and are made aware of with our alumni and with our students that are currently through the cohort. Um, you know, we're always, in fact, I know that our alumni have helped each other find new jobs just because they can. Um, it's just, it's such a tight knit group that it's, it's wonderful and beautiful to be part of. I'm just, I'm just basking in it. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is your success rate? Does anybody drop out? You know, it's very rare that someone drops out, mainly because we're really uh, we're really cognizant of making sure that the people who come into the program know what they're getting into, and more importantly, want to get into computer programming. We are definitely not a school that will take anybody if you have a pulse. We really want to make sure that we are doing right, not only by the student, but by the marketplace as well, you know, we're, we have to protect both the students and the marketplace. And so um, we do take very seriously about talking with students and making sure they understand what it means to be a computer programmer. Uh, we direct them to resources and other opportunities and um, give them some ideas of what it's like when they come in. We do open houses all the time. We almost always connect people with alumni so that they can talk about what the experience was like without it feeling like we have to sell it. Um, they get a real honest insight. Um, although our admissions process is incredibly forthcoming and incredibly honest as well, it just it sometimes feels different when it comes from the voice of an alumni. So we try to make sure that we, we chat with our incoming students a lot, and there's a lot of personal contact. So our dropout rate is very, very low because most often students will self-select out before they even get into the program if they don't feel that it's appropriate for them. So the students that do continue through and do say, yes, I, I, I know what I'm getting into. Yes, this is what I want to do, are really committed. And they, they really do want to make it through the program and get into the field. Um, so that, that is usually why we have such a low, or a low dropout rate, a very high success rate, 
is because we take we take our job very seriously. We don't just want to accept anybody. We want to make sure that we're doing right by everyone. That's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. I think what happens so frequently is like people want butts and chairs, and they yep. they kind of just um, take what they can get um, instead of being very selective. And I, I really appreciate. Um, like the first, one of the first things you told me was like, this is super intense and it's not for everybody. And, um, cause if you don't know that going in, I can, I can imagine it'd be quite, quite a shock. It is, it is. And a lot of the, the frequently asked questions that we get for people who are totally uncertain of whether or not this is something they want to do is my, my question back to them is, well, what do you want to be doing for the rest of your life? Um, it's kind of like, so when I, when I hire instructors, um, and I say, my, my question to them is, you know, um, why do you want to get into teaching? If, if they don't give me an answer that focuses on the students, they're not likely to get hired because if it's about the content, you know, the content's going to change. Dep- I mean, tomorrow, I mean, you look at Swift, what happened last year, right? right? We switched completely from Objective-C to Swift. And at the end of the day, we're teaching people, not content. And so it's really important for the focus to be on the students. And it's the same thing with the incoming students. You know, what do you want to be doing? And if they say, I want to be making a million dollars off of an one app that I built, then I, I really encourage them to really reconsider why they're coming into it. But if their answer is something like, I really like to solve problems. I love to work in teams. I like to, to collaborate. And I love to, um, I love puzzles and I love trying to figure things out and tinker well, that's the perfect personality right there. You know, then they're coming in for the right reasons. And not everybody wants to do that. Some people um, only want to build one app. Um, and that's that, and maybe there's, you know, there's, I, and I shouldn't exclude the the persona of say um, project managers who want to come in and understand the concepts so that they can better manage their teams so that they can better um, have a better dialogue with their developers. And there's a space for them here too. Like those people are also very successful, but it's because they know what they want to do by the end. They're very, very clear on what they want to be able to do with the skill set. Um, and they're also aware of how difficult development is. It's oftentimes we we see people who self-select out to be the people who say, Well, I've got this million dollar app idea and I just want to learn how to make it, that usually end up realizing that no, we're we're pretty serious about converting people to being lifelong developers, not just the, the one shot in the dark. So we're also one of the schools that focus a lot on developer persona. We don't just teach code. We pride ourselves in being able to teach people to be developers because there's an entire, um, persona around what that means. You have to be able to work in teams. You have to be able to, um, communicate what you're doing, where you're working. You have to be able to not be afraid of failure and be resourceful and all these other aspects of it too. So those are usually the people that tend to self-select out. They are the people that are not interested in becoming lifelong developers, that they just want to build something. You know, that that focus on communication in teams, I think, is so overlooked. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this cultural stereotype of the lonely male, of course, coder in, of course, his mom's basement, like hacking away at stuff. And mm-hmm. That's not the reality of most development today. Most development today is even if you're only working with one or two other p- people, you're going to be working with people. Yeah. Um, and 
I, I think a lot of people forget that. Like, you've got to have some social skills, some communication skills, and just like interpersonal relationship skills in general. Yeah, absolutely. And to make that a little bit more concrete for those who are listening, like most teams implement what is known as agile development. And agile development requires you to have a five minute meeting every day with your team that says, what did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? What blockers do you have? And if you can't communicate in a very clear and concise manner and be able to prioritize and assess and evaluate and to quickly turn around and communicate that, you're actually hurting your team from being productive. And so one of the things that we focus a lot on is how do you get that? How do you get that skill set? How do you get comfortable saying, I was only able to get one thing done yesterday because we had a fire alarm? And being comfortable with that and saying, my blocker now is Sue from this because she wasn't able to give me this one asset. Okay, great. Moving on. Well, I'll talk to Sue. Not a problem. Like it's a totally different approach to just even work that unless you have that communication skill set, it can be really, really difficult. And especially if you're going to go freelance, because Mm -hmm. now you have to deal directly face-to-face with clients. And that is a totally different avenue and ballpark (laughs) in regards to communication. It really is. Yes, it is. (laughs) So can we talk about you a little bit more? Sure. Okay. What do you want to know? (laughs) I want to know, so you went from education, which is dominated you know, there are a lot of women who work in education mm-hmm. spaces to working um, in the tech space um, and as has become like very clear over the last year, there are a lot of men in tech yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot of cultural differences, I think, between education and the tech industry. How has that been for you? Yeah, it's been an interesting transition. So when I was in the traditional education setting, I worked almost exclusively with women. Uh, men were the minority and still to a certain extent, still, especially when I, since I was in high school, I was an English teacher and that is predominantly female driven. Uh, and as you move up into administration to a certain level, of course, um, to a certain level, it's also very female driven. And so transitioning into the tech space I was not, I was not expecting um, any kind of shift. I wasn't expecting to need to do any kind of shift because I'm like, well, I've, I've worked with this kind of level before. I'll be fine. And it was just a different culture. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It was just different. And it kind of caught me off guard, um, especially because the tech field is predominantly driven by men. Now, I'm very, very fortunate to be working with men that are advocates for all forms of, of diversity in the tech field. So not just women, but other forms of minority as well. And um, I think that that is, has been imperative for me to understand how to interact in this tech field. Um, It's just been an interesting shift. And so, for example, just communication styles are different. I'm very much used to having a lot of verbal processing because that's a lot of times how a lot of the women that I worked with would, um, problem solve. It was, we would sit down and and bounce ideas off of each other. We would be sounding boards. Um, and many of the the men in the tech field, at least the ones that, that I have met have been willing to be a sounding board, but it's much more of a, okay, let's just execute. Let's just get through and figure it out and and do it. And it's again, neither one is better or worse. It just is a different source of, of culture. Um, and I'm very cognizant 
of that as well. So we do have a cohort. We almost always have a cohort where we have only one or two women. And I'm very aware during those times to go out and do frequent touch bases with those women. How are things going? How are you feeling? And I become hypersensitive to the environment in which the students learn. And I'm always hypersensitive to that in regards to how um, the atmosphere is being treated in our cohorts, because I know that whatever atmosphere we have in the classroom, that's going to get transferred over into the workplace. And so we don't tolerate the, the, the programmer mentality. We are not a frat house. We are a family. And that includes a lot of diversity. It also includes a lot of um, tolerance and compassion. So teaching that on the front end has become a priority uh, in, in many regards for all of us that are here at Mobile Makers because we want to change the field because of that. But it is, it is a totally different ballgame when it comes to being a female in the tech, in the tech space. And there are just things you have to be aware of, like the fact that, that you are a minority in the group. Not that it's um, good or bad, but just being aware of that. Sometimes you may have to defend your decisions when you normally wouldn't have to. Um, thankfully, I've never experienced that with the people that I work with. So I'm very grateful to be where I am, but I have been in spaces and it's just a different atmosphere. It's mm-hmm. an entirely different atmosphere where they look at you like, no, there's no way that you can be the one that's in charge here. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, really, I am. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've rarely had that experience too. I I have had it um, where it's just like, nope. And and there have been times where I haven't backed down on things when I didn't really care just because I knew if I back down on this one thing, then they're going to expect me to back down every time. Right. Um, so I have experienced that a little bit. Um, and it's always nice to hear because we hear so much of the negative, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the, the bad things that people experience in, um, in not diverse workspaces or less mm-hmm. diverse workspaces. So it's always nice to have someone come on and say, you know, I've, I haven't had to deal with this a whole lot. Um, no, but I'm also in a very unique situation and I recognize that, but I, I leverage that to my advantage. I mean, I'm in a, I'm overseeing a learning environment. Mm -hmm. So I have the opportunity where many other women do not, where I can step forward if I see something and say, teachable moment, because when you get into the workplace, this is not acceptable. This is what's going on. And I don't think that a lot of women have that luxury to be able to call it out for what it is. Mm -hmm. But I'm very, very aware of that. And I really try very hard to stay hypersensitive to that. And anytime I notice something, it becomes a teachable moment. So it's never anything. I try not to approach it with a sense of um, being punitive because most often when women are being discriminated against in the workplace, in these environments, men don't even realize they're doing it. Yep. And so it's not a matter of um, punishment. It's a matter of education. And maybe this is why I'm in education is because I believe it's a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. So, but I use that as an opportunity to pull people aside and say, okay, did you recognize that you did this nine times out of 10? They say, oh my God, I had no idea. Like I didn't even realize that what I said did X, Y, and Z, or I can't believe I actually said that. Is that what I said? So a lot of times it's just an education. And like I said, I have a unique opportunity where I can do that. And I am also surround, my instructional staff is incredibly open to hearing about things. So most often they're not the ones that are causing it, but when it happens, 
I can pull my team together and be like, okay, did everybody notice this? You know, did, did everybody see this happening? Let's take off the male gaze for a minute. Did everybody notice that this is what happened and this is what, what the results were? You know, what can we do in the future to try and prevent the natural, um, the environment where this is acceptable, you know? And so it's, again, none of it is very punitive. It's really just a matter of, oh, look, this happened. What can we do to prevent it in the future? And what can we do to solve it now? Which is really, again, I recognize is a very unique position to where I am. But it's also an amazing amalgamation of both the engineer mindset and the education mindset, too, where it's like, Mm -hmm. it's just a fact. This happened. This needs to not happen again. How do we solve that problem? That's exactly right. I approach it with a, all right, we found a bug. Right. Let's de- let's debug it. <laughs> and um, that disarms everybody immediately because it's a, it's then now it's a problem to solve. It's, yeah. it's something to engineer around. So it's been very successful thus far. And, you know, so many people have been grateful to that. In fact, we've, we've had, um, had an instructor at one point in time come in and all of our instructors are working developers. And, and this one happens to work in a development shop. And he came in and he's like, I had a developer come up to me and explain that she had to mansplain, that she was having someone mansplain something to her. And he's like, I'd never heard that term before. And I went, teachable moment. Do you want me to tell you what that means? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, tell me what that means. And so we talked about it and I gave him an example. I'm like, this is what it looks like in the workplace. And his immediate response, his immediate response was, is there anything that I need to do to help support her? That was his immediate response. And I said, did she ask you for some help? And he's like, well, no. And I said, ask her, ask her if she wants you to step in and say, and be very honest with her and just say, you know what? That sucks that this happened. What can I do to help? Is there anything you want me to do? Um, and he has become now very aware of an environment in his, and thankfully it was not with one of his coworkers. It was from someone external to the company, but it was um, a teachable moment for him to be able to see it for the first time. And then to not only be able to see it, but he was so interested. He was so um, his first primary concern was to help, was to help prevent it from happening and to make sure that she felt safe, which speaks volumes about who he is as a person. And it's just, it's great. It's again, it goes back to, I work with great people, you know? And so these are the types of things that I'm trying to do uh, where I can to help change, change the field in that regard. And um, I feel like I have a responsibility to that because I have them here to learn. So they're a captive audience there. It's a safe environment in order to take risks. They should make those risks here so that we can help put them on the path to write. That's so amazing. I just, I think that it's so cool that you have the chance to like make these teachable moments, because as you say, what happens a lot of the time in the workplace is it's just like, well, here's this thing that happened. And I've had this happen to me and not my current job, but in my previous job where it was like, oh, hey, this really like not cool thing happened to me. And what do I do if I say something, then like I'm the horrible woman in the office And if I don't say something, then I'm setting the precedent for, you know, this is an okay thing for for people to do. And and it's an okay way for people to treat the women in in this particular work environment. And it's a really kind of helpless and gross feeling. Mm -hmm. So the more people who don't do those kinds of things in the future, the better off we're all going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, I think it's also important that, so I'm, as director, I am overseeing a lot of things and I recognize that I'm in a leadership role and it does fall on me to make sure that the entire environment is a safe environment and that I'm the one that calls out when things are not appropriate and that are not, um, conducive to learning and to the safety of both the students and the employees, both the mental and emotional and physical safety of everybody. And that is something that um, I take very seriously. And again, the I am in a really unique position in that everybody is here to learn, even the instructors. All of my instructors are here because they want to better themselves as people. And that gives me immediate um, accessibility and allowance to be able to tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey, <laughs> let's fix this. Here's an opportunity where we can, where you can see where things are going wrong. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's great. I was at an event once with a coworker of mine and I had someone, um, wasn't quite man explaining things to me, but really just was arguing against something that I was saying. I don't even remember what it was, but he was arguing against something that I was trying to explain to him. And my counterpart literally said word for word what I was saying. And this other gentleman went, oh, well, that's not a problem. And he walked away. And I turned to my coworker and I'm like, did you see what just happened? You have to see what just happened. Did you see it? Did you recognize it? Did you feel it? And he kind of shook his head and he's like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And I said, did you repeat exactly what I said? And he said, yeah, I did. I'm like, did you notice how his reaction was drastically different? And he's like, I did. I just thought he was getting tired of arguing. And I'm like, no, he agreed with you because it was from you, not from me. And I'm like, you're married. So you need to be aware of these things. <laughs> Your wife will, will respect the fact that you can now watch for these things. So I think that, again, it goes back to that, just calling awareness to it and bringing it up to the right people's attention. And I mean, that's the, the biggest takeaway that I have from all of this is that um, very, very, very few times uh, are we malicious with intent mm-hmm. where it's often benign neglect or just ignorance. And it's not until we're made aware of it that we ultimately recognize it. So we can't blame. I mean, we can blame people for sure, but we can all, it's not a matter of blaming. It's a matter of accountability. It's, it's not about you did something wrong. It's, did you notice you did something inappropriate? Can we work on fixing it? It's an accountability thing. And, um, I just feel like I'm in one of the best places to be able to help make that change happen. Yeah, you are. These types of things are the reason why women leave male dominated spaces is because of these, the unconscious biases, the microaggressions, or as I've seen it called more recently, background radiation, um, that, that, you know, it's just kind of like when you're marginalized in any space, when you're not part of the mind, the majority, you know, there's just kind of this constant, um, bombardment of, of stuff that you face and you might not even be realizing it anymore because you've just kind of learned to live with it, but Mm -hmm. it definitely exists. And it's, it's extremely difficult to, to recognize, um, until, there's some kind of catalyst and that's Jesse talked to me today and oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been doing this or, you know, Hey, what's this feminism stuff about? Let me do some research or, you know, whatever that might be. Um, 
it, it's hard to recognize until you know to look for it. Yes. And it's, you know, sometimes it's also a matter of giving people permission to kind of help. Um, to, it's almost giving people permission to, st- to step up and help too. Mm-hmm. Like some of the things when in my talks with, with a lot of people, when I, because we tend to do, if there's something wrong, I tend to, t- if it's really, really wrong with the staff, I'll do family meetings with the students. I do individual one-on-ones, but if something happens in a classroom where, um, something was said or something happened that might not be able to work really, really well for a safe environment, um, I'll use a, a poor example, but it will help illustrate. So if someone's like, well, this was a stupid idea. I can't believe you thought of it. You idiot that's not a safe environment. Right. <laughs> so what I do with, um, at that point is with students, I'll pull the individual student aside and be like, what's going on, my friend? Like how, what makes you think that first off what's going on? That's always where I start. What's going on. You know, how did you recognize how you reacted? And then most of the time they either say yes or no. And if they say yes, then it's always a matter of talk to me about why you think that that's appropriate. And we open it up to a dialogue, but with my staff, we sit down as a family meeting and we say, what did we do or what did we more importantly not do to um, create an environment that made it apparent that this was okay, that there should have been enough of a filter built into the environment in the classroom management where a student would stop and go, I can't say that. That's just not right. Mm -hmm. That's not good in this space. And so if we fail, and sometimes it's high stress. So, I mean, it's an eight-week boot camp and just things explode and people get angry and it happens. Like, I get it. Um, But it's always at least a good point of discussion. It's like, could we have seen this coming? Is this something that we can talk about? Because we we really try to mitigate and create, like I said, a familial sense of of, um, companionship and and camaraderie during these eight weeks because they really are in it together. Um, And we're almost always successful, but once in a while, of course, we're dealing with humans and sometimes humans tend to be volatile. Um, so <laughs> we, um, we talk about it and usually it's, there's almost always someone that says, well, in hindsight, I noticed that they were arguing, you know, three days ago and, um, you know, they both kind of stormed off and screamed at each other, but I, you know, I was, was hoping it would die down on its own. That's always the, the, the red flag. And at that point in time, it's like, well, you know what? You have permission to pull them aside and say, blowing up and walking away from each other is not okay. How can we resolve this? You know, so being able to recognize early interventions too, you know, um, we had one cohort that once the, it started for one day, everybody started calling each other, bro. What's up, bro? What's going on, bro? And I I called, I put a kibosh on that. (laughs) We had a family meeting and it was again, a family meeting with the students. And I'm like, look, I love you guys. So this is said from an area of, of, of compassion here. You got to stop, find a different term, you know, find a different term, call each other peeps. I don't care. Like whatever that is, just find a different term. And, um, you know, some of them were like, well, we don't really mean anything by it. And I'm like, awesome. Then we're going to start calling everybody ladies. That's what we're going to do. We'll do it for a day. Everybody, what's up, ladies? And it made them uncomfortable enough that they switched their language. So, I mean, it's really just a matter of them being able to recognize it. Again, it goes back to teachable moments. We're at an hour, but I wanted to talk to you about the next generation and Doctor Who. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about it, shall we? (laughs) Because Uh I, like you, um, grew up watching the next generation and the original, not the reboot, Doctor Who. Oh, 
How much do you love on a scale of really <laughs> much to amazingly awesome? How much do you love Peter Capaldi? Mm, I I actually don't love him. Okay, that's I think, okay. I think um I think I'm learning to um but the first season with Peter Capaldi as the doctor, he was very hostile. Um and very angry and I was like and I'm like David Tennant fuzzy doctor fan. Oh, okay and so I'm like where where's my squishy doctor you know <laughs> um so I think it's that you know when there's a new when there's a regeneration there's always like this adjustment period where you're learning who the doctor is and and this one's kind of angry so far <laughs> he is angry but I feel like it's um I like his anger. I, I want him to get pissed off. You know, I don't, I don't know if I can say that on your podcast, but I am, I, yeah. I want him to get angry. I really, because there, he's been through, well, he came out of the wars and that was Christopher Eccleston, right? So, and Christopher Eccleston was the crazy doctor. He just was not, I mean, and he should have been crazy. He just came out of the war. And then you had the David Tennant where it's like, okay, maybe the world isn't so awful. Like, I can, it's full of love. And then you had the Matt Smith where it was the childlike doctor where everything was just new and exploratory. Um, but it's like now one of the things that he has had to see several times now is obviously the loss of a lot of companions, but at the same time, I'm just ready for him to be, to go through the grieving process of being angry. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he had to make a really hard choice in in the wars and and I'm just, I'm ready for him to be angry. And I think that it also helps the audience remind us that the doctor is not a good guy. Like he's, um, there's a line from a movie and I can't remember what it is. I hope one of your listeners will be able to point it out, but there's a line in a movie that says something like, um, angels were always only seen during moments of war or death. So do you really ever want to see an angel? And I feel like that that's very true of the doctor. Like we all want to meet the doctor, but do we really want to meet the doctor? And I, I think that that is one of the parts of his, um, his allure. Like he's just able to be these different people and he's ever present and non-existent at the same time. And I think that that creates a very, um, a, a large um, sense of turmoil in him. And I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I, def- I definitely think it's so Christopher Eccleston was, um, you know. Yeah, he was kind of weird. Um, and <laughs> I think that he would have been excellent. It would have been nice to see that particular incarnation carry on a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we did have quite a bit of squishy doctor, you know, David Tennant and Matt Smith were both. I mean, David Tennant definitely had his moments of of unmitigated rage you know and he got that very true stony face and kind of that snarly lip thing going on (laughs) and but he was still so cute and um and yeah we we've had the doctor has not historically been super nice you know he's been kind of callous and kind of um big picture you know and uh very like had has a sense of self-preservation and selfishness that I don't think has been as present um, in the reboot um, as it was kind of in the original 
original series, you know, like I think mm-hmm. about Tom Baker and the Daleks and yes. and how how harsh and mean he was um, and like rightfully so. But um, yeah. yeah, we just haven't seen that as much lately. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, one of the things that I like about this doctor and especially with Clara's relationship with him is it's it's almost like he's um he's like a I don't, lunatic is too strong of a word but he is a raged filled man who needs to be who can only be soothed by a teacher who can only be soothed by a human and is almost um a mother figure like that governess figure oh, to yeah. him and so you know it's almost like because that's what Clara is. Clara is his governor or his governess. You know, she's the one that schools him and teaches him and keeps him in line. And um, I just, it's interesting because, so Peter Capaldi's doctor gives me the impression that the reason he's so angry is because he did so much to um, save so many worlds and so many lives that it almost feels like, he gives the impression that he feels like it's for naught. Mm. You know, and I think that, um, it's really interesting to see him play with that and to see him interact with that. I will tell you though, I do think, and I love Christopher Eccleston. So forgive me for saying this. Christopher Eccleston did an amazing job with a really tough character. He was yes, the he first did. doctor after a reboot. Um, I think that had he done a second season that it would have been a little bit tighter. His character would have been a little bit tighter. So I think that he was, but he did a phenomenal job. Um, but I think that David Tennant coming in really, raised the stakes in regards to what could the doctor, what the character could be done with. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think he challenged the character and the writer and writers in different ways than, um, than what had been done in the previous past. And that is no slight to the amazing work and challenges that Christopher Eccleston brought to the table. Um, I just think it was a shift for sure when Tenet came on. Well, and I don't think Christopher Eccleston was, and correct me if I'm misremembering, but I don't think that he had um, the deep background knowledge that David Tennant did. Like, right. David Tennant from a very young age was like, I want to be the doctor someday, you know, whereas <laughs> Chris Eccleston, I think I read somewhere, like he hadn't ever really watched Doctor Who and he wasn't super familiar with it. And so he didn't have... um the fanatical fanboyness that David Tennant did <laughs> and was right. able to draw from, you know, and, um, and yeah, so I think that he like, it, and I don't know, but I think that David Tennant was more able to like step in and, and know what it was about or know what he thought it should be about as that incarnation of the doctor. Whereas, you know, Christopher Eccleston was just kind of like, all right, this is a role that I need to figure out as I go. Yeah. Um, and he definitely was getting into that. Um, so it's sad that he left after one season. It is sad that he left after one season. I would have liked to have seen the doctor post-war a little bit more, but I think one of the most tender stories that I love about the the, the series, um, is the, the Peter Capaldi story of him writing into the doctor who magazine and talking about when he was a kid, he used to, he would write, he wrote a letter into the doctor who magazine when he was a kid talking about how much he loved doctor who and all these other things. And now here he is as the doctor and there's a video flying around and I cannot for the life of me remember where I first saw it, but, um, they're doing their very first table read, which is where all the actors sit down and read the scripts. Um, and they do just kind of the, you know, early blocking and it was his first table read as the doctor. And so what they do is all the actors introduce themselves and who they're playing. And they ended with him. And so it's Clara next to him. And 
um, you know, so-and-so I'm playing Clara. And then it gets to him and he's like, I'm Peter Capaldi, I'm playing the doctor. And the entire room abrupts in applause and he starts to cry. Oh. And it's just, it's just like, okay, yes, someone made their life goal. This is great. <laughs> that is, I had, I have not seen that. I'll have to look for it and try to put it in the show notes. It's great. I'll see if I can find it too, if you can. So that way cool. we can try and tag team that. Sounds good. Jesse, how can people find you online? Um, the easiest place to find me is Twitter. And I am just uh, jesse at chardier.com or I'm sorry, at jessechardier.com is my um, website. And then that's also my Twitter is, you know, just jesse chardier and you can easily find me. Perfect. And you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes and want to tell somebody about the show, that's the best way to bring new listeners to less than or equal and for me to find new guests. It would also be wonderful if you'd leave a review or even just a star rating on iTunes. That also helps people find the show. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I am Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.